0: Hi, I'm Shane Safir and I'm Alcine Mumby and this is Street Data Pod where we dream with you about next generation schools that affirm love and value every learner
1: here we have conversations about healing hope and listening at the margins Pod friends, we are so excited today to have with us the illustrious Denise Augustine and Dr. Jamila Dugan, co-author of Street Data, So, so excited to dig in today to some big questions with these brilliant colleagues. It's going to be a deep conversation, and I'm going to start with asking our guests to just introduce themselves and share a little bit of story with us. So the question, maybe we'll start with you, Denise, if you could say who you are, kind of locate the work you do, and then what were your experiences of learning as a young person, those could be in your formal schooling, but also in your home and community. And how do those experiences shape the work you do today?
2: Thank you, Shane. Thanks, Elsine. Jamila, it's great to be in the room with you. Thanks for this opportunity. Entha Swialt, alt My Halkomelem name is Swialt. I'm from Shamanis First Nation. I identify as a Hulkaminum woman of mixed ancestry. My dad's side, we're mostly English, with some French and Métis ancestry, and on Mom's side, we are Halkomelem with some English and Portuguese ancestry. I um, have been an educator for over 30 years, and currently I have been seconded to the Ministry of Education in BC as the Superintendent of Indigenous Education for the province. Nice. Shane, you asked about early learning experiences, and one of the things that I've been reflecting on lately is how lucky I was and still continue to be to have the relationship I have with my mom. She believed in me as a learner. She believed, truly believed that all of us kids, I'm the oldest of seven, could do whatever we wanted to do if we put our minds and hearts to it. And she taught us to advocate for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the other person that I'm so grateful for is my grandmother, who also was that undying belief in potential and possibility. These women also taught me about how to see children as whole humans, not less than, but as uh, humans that we could walk shoulder to shoulder with, and, and so long as we're willing to learn from as well as to teach. And I think that really shaped my learning experience. And so when I went into school, I saw, I, I, I entered with that worldview that the teacher was one of us, we were a community together. And I wrestled through that, with that through my school experience, because certainly that wasn't the way every educator I worked with saw the experience. I remember in grade eight having a science teacher who brought some specimens out in formaldehyde jars and put them in front of us. And the specimens that were brought out really pushed against my belief system around what was sacred. And I went home distraught and my mom encouraged me to first of all articulate to her, she practiced deep listening, what was what was troubling me and then she encouraged me to go and talk to the teacher and to do that in a respectful way make sure it's an appointment after school bring a trusted friend to sit with you um, don't blame be curious all the things and it was really instrumental in understanding how a relationship dynamic can be changed because the teacher was super responsive
1: love it i
2: have a hunch my mom may have called him and told him what was coming. Listen, mamas and their baby. Listen, <laughs> I
1: love that. Oh, I love that.
2: It's true. It's true. But just what a what a moment that was in my educational journey about advocacy and agency and and owning our our learning and being in a relationship with those we're learning with.
1: What a beautiful story, Denise. Thank you for taking time to share that. That's just like such a, an image of how we can empower and equip our children to speak for themselves, right? Because we take away their agency when we speak for them. And just thinking about what you said, how to see children as whole humans and not less than. Just like ever since I met you, was lucky enough to cross paths with you four years ago now, I believe, almost four years. I've seen you embody that value in every interaction you have. So it's just a gift to be here in conversation with you today. So same question for you Jamila. I'm so excited to hear. I've heard you speak about elements of this before, but to hear you today on the pod, what were some of your experiences of learning as a young person and student at home and community and schooling and how do those show up in the work you do today? Well, first I just have to say
3: Denise, thank you for sharing some of your story. It's just even when I listen to you talk, I just hear such a like groundedness in almost everything that you say. So it's just, it's so calming. So I really appreciate you sharing that and the undenying belief from your mom. I usually talk about it a lot, but my father is like my 100,000% cheerleader. There's no way I'd be where I am without that guy. Mm -hmm. I think I wanna start just with um, some of the things I've been thinking about in terms of what shaped me by going back to where I come from. So I am a black woman, but I still consider myself a young black girl straight out of East Oakland, California. Where they at? Where they at? Where they at? I sold tapes every day, me and Freddie B. Been famous since 1983. Not Oakland in general. East Oakland, California. And if you're from Oakland, you know why I am making that delineation. And what's so interesting, I think, about my upbringing is I lived, have always lived between the world of opportunity robbery and opportunity abundance. And so as an educator, I am very, you know, much shaped by an experience of schooling where I went to school that was ethnically, racially, um, linguistically diverse for the first part of my educational experience, where there was a lot of powerful learning experiences and there were high expectations for most students. Now I say most students because the majority of the students were not Black Latinx or indigenous students. So most students, there was really high expectations. Um, And, you know, I had some really great learning experiences. Hey, Mr. Maduli, Miss Puckett, like really great teachers. Shane, I think knows Mr. Maduli, like awesome teacher. His
1: partner taught at our school at Jude Jordan. It's a small world. <laughs> Martez, shout out to so Martez. <laughs> yes, so, so great,
3: right? But I had those experiences, but I was also deeply drawn to my peers outside of school. And I don't see, like, I could describe them as, you know, Black youth that were at risk or (laughs) something like that, but really they were just had, did not have access to the same opportunity that I had. So my mom made a conscious choice to send me to school outside of the city that I lived in um, at first. And I was very schoolish because my mom was very schoolish. (laughs) And so I knew what it meant to do things in a certain way. Well, the kids in my neighborhood went to Burbank and Burbank did not have the same expectations for kids. And it was also largely a black school. I consistently go back and look at like, where did our paths diverge? Same block, same kids outside, just different opportunities. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think about how I was, you know, had these powerful experiences in the classroom, but I was drawn also to my peers who just had different opportunities. And so I think about very much my story and how. I actually, like, that's all important, but I actually wasn't conscious of any of that. And so what I've been starting to think a lot about is actually what shaped me, if I'm not trying to put all the, like, extra context on it. And really, I was shaped by, like, grittiness, real talk, hip-hop, hustle. Mm. I grew up with hustlers. My first boyfriends when I was younger were hustlers. And I think very much how important it is for me to start owning that in a way that's really positive because the way that they hustled taught me hustle for sure. And I am very much shaped, not by hustle as in like urgency, I I, not urgency, but hustle as in like, what is your goal? How do you get there? How do you be strategic about the resources you have? And then use that, which is also very similar to hip hop. Like I, I, i am so steeped in music. And that really, really shaped me. And then the greediness and the real talk, like getting past the BS, I think is really, really important. Um, because now as an educator, I'm starting to be like, yes, I'm very smart from my college education, but really like what gets me, what really gets me through is like when I'm really, really real authentic and, and, and relying on, on that uh, knowledge. So I'll say that piece. And then just beside that, what shaped me I very much grew up in a household where tradition was super important. Ancestors, super important. Pushing back on the status quo, super important. We did rituals for um, those who passed every single year. There were 50 people at my house all the time celebrating blackness and I hated it as a kid. I hated wearing my dashiki. I hated wear, you know, getting ready for Kwanzaa because I thought it was so uncool. And meanwhile, my kids have all these dashikis in their, uh, in their habits, <laughs> Right? But at the time you don't know, right? But I'm very clear how much that shaped me um, then. And then the last thing I just wanted to say is that I'm very much shaped by the experience of failure and success over and over again. So I mentioned that I went to school where there was expectations for most and I was, you know, really schoolish. Well, as soon as I wasn't schoolish, <laughs> I preferred to hang out with my friends outside of school. I failed out very, very quickly. And my dad put me into an Afrocentric school and it turned me around really quickly because I was so interested in learning our story. That's what history was called, uh, social studies and was called our story. Yes. And I became like the class president. And then I like, graduated and things like kind of changed. So I've I've had this experience of success failure over and over and I think all of that shapes my understanding of the fullness and innate humanity and genius of of kids
0: I just want to say Jamila, it's so beautiful to hear you talk about your experience because I had a similar experience, but it was literally because of my, my gifted and talented program, like same bus, same neighborhood. And then we just had a totally different experience from nine to three in elementary school. It's just like so bizarre. It's like, why do we do that? I watched some of my teachers greet me differently than the other black girls who got off the bus from the same neighborhood. This is my question. Actually, I think this goes to Denise. I'm so excited about your new position as superintendent of indigenous education for the province. Big responsibility. And so I'm curious, can you share a little bit about the truth and reconciliation that's happening in the province and how that informs the work you are leading? And tell us about your vision for indigenous education in in British Columbia.
2: Thanks, Alcine. The work isn't new. You know, I can go back to 2010 with the beginning of the transformation of the curriculum, the BC curriculum. And at that time, the First People's Principles, which are a set of principles that were created with knowledge keepers from throughout the province, those principles laid a foundation for that transformed curriculum. So, you know, actively this work has been going on for a while. You're aware of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the calls to action which have some very specific actions for the K-12 system. and Then there are a couple of other pieces that are really key as well. The BC tripartite education agreement, and that's an agreement unlike any other agreement in Canada anyway, between the province, uh, Canada, and the First Nations Education Steering Committee, which is really providing some guidance on how to do this reconciliation work. And then more recently, the action plan that came out of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is another another piece that's really guiding our work with 13 education, K-12 specific actions. Another piece that's, I think, really interesting is an additional standard, Standard 9, added to the standards that guide Teachers in the province. And that standard calls on educators to contribute towards truth and reconciliation, to become aware of their own assumptions and biases, to integrate Indigenous ways of knowing and being into their work. And so that the standards provide sort of a view for everybody about what should happen in education, but they also provide criteria in case, you know, correction needs to be taken. So it's a really significant piece that we're building capacity around, right? So all of that's lovely, but the connection I'm going to make is none of it really matters until we start to get real. And so for me, that means that my granddaughter, Nova, the vision that I have for Truth and Reconciliation in Education is that she gets to go to school and like I've said befo- before be seen as a whole human. All parts of her get to come into the classroom that so she doesn't have to be ashamed or you know be looking at her peers Elsine that are being talked to differently than she is because she's light-skinned First Nations uh, child. I think Justice Murray Sinclair spoke about reconciliation as really just learning how to be good neighbors for each other, and I really love that. So if we're good neighbors, then it means I know and understand you, and when you're in trouble, I've got you, and vice versa. And we can do that. That is, you know, that's the getting real part for me. Like, we can do that.
1: You mentioned the BC competency based curriculum and 2010 with the origins of that. So I feel like it's it's such a radical departure from curriculum in the States. And so I thought it might be helpful because I'm sure we're gonna have a lot of American listeners, if you can just briefly explain what that is and how you imagine it might be different from something like the common core state standards that's so oriented toward testing. Right like standardized tests and like checking off a bunch of standards so what is what is the bc competency based curriculum
2: yeah i think I think the really brilliant part of the transform curriculum is a focus on the competencies on and I encourage you to look them up but for example, um, critical and creative thinking, cultural and personal identity, being able to collaborate the things about helping us to be the best humans that we can be in community with each other. And then underneath all of that is this idea of the first people's principles, which are things like honoring the ancestors and making education relevant for not just for me as a human and an individual today, but for my community, for our community and for the future. So it's really contextualizing what we learn in in history and then also a focus on the place that we live? How do we honor the mountains and the streams and the animals and the birds and so on in the work that we're doing, in the learning that we're we're generating? So it's an invitation for teachers to have a a nature-focused or a place-based pedagogy. The curriculum writers went through every subject area and looked at specifically integrating Indigenous worldviews and perspectives. And some are more vague, it's harder to get to, and we're still in process and figuring out how to do this. But it really is a call to action in that there is more than one right right way to see the world. And there's more than one content to study. And it behooves us all to learn that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that also sounds like some of the grad profile work or the competency-based work that's happening in different states. Sometimes it's a state level, like I know Kentucky just passed some things, but also just at a district level. There a lot of districts are thinking about, well, how do I embody? Like, it's the embodiment of these ways to be as a learner, which is just another way to be as a human in the world, right? <laughs> it's like... Yeah. So now, Jamila, could you share a bit about the Afrocentric ways of knowing and being as an educational lens?
3: Yeah, I think that's a great question and I I think whenever someone asks me about Afrocentric ways of knowing I have to start with a place of honoring cuz I'm still I still see myself very much as a student when I I think of Dr. Asa Hilliard, right, who could drop some real gems around this idea of centric education and so many ancestors and elders who can encapsulate it well and the reason why I say that is because I'm going to speak from where I am in this moment of time, which is continuing to kind of evolve my understanding because there's been so much robbery around like being able to access and really be able to name ways of knowing that I'm shaped by. So I'm I'm an evolving human being as I, I share this with mm-hmm. you. But what I've come to see it as in my real experience is this kind of non-separation between mind and body and experience and learning. They all kind of go together. And so a couple of things I can draw on from that story as being huge, community, especially community accountability as being a really huge piece, joy is huge. And I love the way Dr. Goldie Muhammad talks about literacy for liberation. Our entire diaspora, at least in uh, America, has been based on getting knowledge and literacy as much as we can for the tool of freedom for us, for us to be able to access the world in the way that we see fit and feels natural and congruent with ourselves. So I, I would say literacy for liberation and really in any, anything for the sake of taking care of ourselves and liberation work. And so I think as an educator, I think I very much see as why well. I started with my story with this whole, you know, where I'm coming from in terms of the realness and the hustle and the tradition and all of that, because it all comes together and makes a whole, few, a whole human being that's sitting in front of you. If I'm being centered in Afro-centered, I'm saying, well, this child needs to experience joy. They need to feel accountable to this community. We need to know their story. We got to know their ancestors and where they're coming from. We need to kind of have a whole understanding of that. And through that, they learn their history, the history of others, and think about what it means to be liberated and bring folks along with them or shoulder up with folks as we're trying to move through this world. I think that's the that's, that's where I'll start for now.
1: That was a beautiful answer. Thank you, Jamila, for that. Denise, you mentioned the First People's Principles of Learning. So what does Indigenous pedagogy mean to you? And are there ways for non-Indigenous teachers to integrate some of those tenets with cultural humility without appropriating Indigenous ways of being? So
2: Indigenous pedagogy, what does it mean to me? I think it's how we as educators choose to show up and how we engage. So for instance, do we view ourselves as soul keepers of the knowledge or as facilitators of learning? Mm -hmm. Do we view ourselves as dominant over children or can we have the humility to see ourselves walking shoulder to shoulder? So powerful. Are we able to understand that children, and I said this earlier, if we allow it, teach us as much, if not more, about who we are and the world we live in than we teach them. Obviously, for sure, it's our responsibility to guide, inspire, um, and support. But at the same time, giving every learner agency in their learning. I, I just truly believe in, you know, like I said, I've got 30 years experience as an educator that actually kids know best what they need to learn next. But we just choose not to listen to them. If you look at the First Peoples Principles, you'll see that, as I referenced earlier, it talks about making learning relevant. So, you know, one, one of the ways I use Indigenous pedagogy is when I'm working with a group, I'm asking myself, how does what we're learning today help this learner engage with their or support their family, their community, and the larger community? And I think as, you know, as an education system, we always, don't always lean into that. Well, you should learn this because you might need it one day is not the same response as, this week, it'll help you be a better human in your community. The second part of your question, Shane, was about non-Indigenous teachers integrating Indigenous ways of knowing and being without appropriation. Absolutely. And I would all first offer, we're all colonized people. And so we can go back into our histories and find different ways of being in community with each other and draw on those. I think a big part of this is, though, recognizing that there are many right answers, there are many right ways, and there are many right paths. And once we can do that, that opens us to be a little bit more curious, a little bit more humble, and open to different ways of doing things in our classroom.
0: There's so much richness in what you just shared. But for me, what all of that sits on top of is the shoulder to shoulder with the learners, with the, you know, I call them babies. I say it all the time, like the babies know. And so even in the curriculum and the assessment component, we should be sitting beside the babies. We should be deeply curious as to what they're doing. So I'm going to ask you, Dr. J, when you think about the ways that non-Black teachers can maybe integrate some of these tenets with um, cultural
3: humility and without appropriation? So that's a really great question, Alcine, I think, about other groups of people wanting to incorporate any sort of idea or theory or or way of being or pedagogy. So I will say this in two ways. One is building off of what Shane and Denise already said, and then one is from a concrete experience. The first is interrogation, interrogation, interrogation. I don't need to apply anybody's anything, but what I can do is learn about a way that you, you know, might think is important. For example, joy, right? You have offered to me that joy is extremely important in terms of your way of being. And I would add verve to that for a black person. Like there's joy and verve, uh, movement of body and all of that. Okay. So now I have to a shoulder up with the babies to interrogate to what extent that they experience that. Um, if if someone has explained to me or shared with me that that is culturally quote, cult- Uh, congruent. And then B, I have to interrogate myself and say, to what extent, like, how do I define joy? How has that been aligned with what the kids just told me joy means? or parents just told me, or caregivers have told me what joy means to them. I have to really interrogate both what they're saying and what I'm saying. And then through that, I embody, I manifest and connect what joy can look like authentically for me that's so good. Now I'm going to just say similar to you, Denise, I I don't know if people should just start pouring libations and all of that. I'm I'm not sure I'm with that practice. (laughs) However, I do think that people can, can say, well, what does it mean for me to acknowledge my ancestors? And has that ever been done in my family? And has that been done way back when from there? And how might that look in a way that's authentic to me? Yes. And if you still feel like pouring libations is something that's important, by the way, that's a practice in which you acknowledge ancestors and you and you pour water into plants often to acknowledge and call their names and spirits into the room. But let's say that feels really important to you. Well, that is when I feel like when you have the relationship, with another black person in this case, you might say, hey, this is something I'm thinking about and get you know either per- the perspective that they might want to do it. And if not, let them tell you, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, I think all of those, but it's only if you have relationship because if you just go cherry picking and saying, hey, black person, can I do this thing? That's problematic. Mm-hmm. But I, I do very much think interrogation is so important. And I've really been pushing, especially on my white colleagues and Shane, you and I have talked about this. Like, please do not bestow knowledge onto any marginalized group and you know as if you are the knowledge holder you're not this Mm -hmm. is knowledge that's been there tell me about your story tell me about your epistemology tell me about how you think about these things and then you can offer what your experience and these things that have supported you in the process i.e this practical thing i'm going to share with you I love thinking about this because I think people assume, I I get mad when people think I'm like a DEI consultant or something, I I never signed up for that. I just have equity as my lens. I was actually a school leader at a Mandarin immersion school where the most of my kids were Asian students and there was no other black person on the staff, um, at least on the um, instructional and leadership team than me. And so I learned a whole bunch around my own cultural humility and my own bias and my own ways of being with people across difference. And so to be very concrete, I realized very much, I was working with a a colleague there. We have such a great relationship now, but I remember working there and we were, there was a tension between Black History Month and Chinese New Year. They're both in February. It was a big tension point. And I remember that my orientation at the time was because we had such a big opportunity gap with Black students. I, my, my talking was often about Black students, but I was very invested in our Mandarin-based mission, very, very much so. But I realized my colleague had heard me talking about Black kids so much. She had never heard me say to her, hey, Chinese New Year is really important. To me it's really important that our kids have a holistic experience with this particular piece made me think of like our lesson design and all kinds of other things she needed to hear me tell her hey this matters to me i.e you know what's going on with black students and we are at a mandarin immersion school it very much matters to me that we you know live out this ultimate vision we have for everybody and when she heard me have humility to say hey I realized that you know as much as this issue is important I'm forgetting to incorporate and include this large group of people who are here and the mission that we have it was hard for her to build relationship with me without me having that level of cultural humility so I think when I think about folks coming back into an afrocentric you know sets of knowledge or indigenous ways sets of knowledge you have to have your own humility to say hey this is where my knowledge stands and this is this I know so much about this and I think I'm missing a whole bunch of things and I want to work together to bring that together. And when she heard me say that, and I got checked by multiple people in order to be able to do that, I did not arrive there on my own. I had lovely mentors to be like, "Mm, I think that you may be missing think you may be missing that you are, you know, I had a lot of lovely mentors to help me, but I think the cultural humility from yourself to say what you do and don't know and what you might be missing is really important. And that really, really helped me in that particular environment. So interrogation, I think thinking about your own values and how you manifest them and then your own cultural humility as you're trying to learn in partnership with other people.
1: We are going to end with a conversation around healing. Healing is, I don't think, really explicitly written about too much in this book, but it's it's an undercurrent of this entire project model. I think everything that Jamila and I have been working on collaboratively and in some ways separately as well. And so, Denise, I was wondering if you could kind of speak to what we need to name in the spirit of the truth part, of truth and reconciliation, in order to really heal our school systems.
2: As you may know, here in BC and across Canada, we're continuing to find the unmarked graves of First Nations children who were forced into residential school and who never made it home. And that continues to remind us about the legacy that this education system is carrying. One of the pieces of truth that I think we need to really wrestle with is that this isn't something that's just happened in the past. We have structures and systems in place, practices, beliefs, assumptions that continue to harm the babies i who come to us who parents bring and entrust to us and that's hard for folks to really admit you know it's hard to admit as a teacher of 30 years that I haven't always got it right and sometimes the things that I thought I was doing really well actually were harming others and so another thing that we're talking about is it'll take I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful we can do it in ad generation with our foot on the gas.
1: All right. So, Denise, we are going to close with a lightning round. Six questions, 30 seconds or less to answer. Jamila, we'll hold off on the lightning round with you until next week since you're coming back for our chapter two episode on equity traps and tropes. You ready, Denise? I'm ready. All right. Question one You're called to listen deeply to someone, but what they have to say is triggering. What's the first thing you do?
4: I take a deep breath. I feel my feet on the floor and I imagine my heart expanding.
1: I had such a mere neuron experience right there where I did exactly what you described as you did it. <laughs> Thank you for grounding me amidst a crazy day. All right. Question two What is a practice or a way of being that keeps you grounded in the face of resistance and oppression?
4: I think there are two things. One is my a practice of approaching each human with love first and remaining curious, seeking to understand. And those two things have really served me well in, especially in those places where conversations are hard. Often I find that it's my lack of understanding that's the biggest barrier.
1: Question three, what is one form of street data you believe every educator should be gathering?
4: Time with children and their families.
1: Yes, to families, double tap on that. And then conversely, what is one type of data you feel is overused in educational systems?
4: You know, Shane, you and I have talked about this before. Like I actually think that there's a place for standardized assessment. I think it gives us a piece of information. I just think it's such a small piece of information. And so, I guess when that is the only data that we use, that's where I think we uh, run into problems. So I don't know if it's necessarily that it's overused. It's when it's exclusive, that's a problem.
1: I love that nuance. Thank you for sharing it that way. Question five, what is one essential feature of your radical dream for a classroom?
4: Joy, lots of joy. And I really believe that we haven't figured out yet how to make learning environments places where learners of all different ages come together to engage authentically with the learning as opposed to you know putting learners in age groups which just seems so random um, and engaging them in learning that also is often random
1: All right. Last question. A great learning experience will
4: be something that I remember over and over again, that I, you know, turn my mind back to over and over again, and that it leaves me feeling more energized than when I began.
1: Jamila and Denise, this has been an incredible hour with you all. I really could just continue talking to you for, for days and days. (laughs) I feel like we just had this little powerful think tank and so many directions to keep the conversation going. Thank you for coming. I'll see you in any final words.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your heart and your wisdom and just your thoughtfulness. Like, I'm just really excited to hear what the viewers think about these ideas or the listeners, I should say. They were so meaty, so meaty.
2: Oh, so good. Thank you so much. I am so grateful to have moments with you. Amazing women.
3: Thank you all. It was so great to be with you.
0: You can follow Denise on Twitter at Denise Augustine one And you can follow Jamila on Twitter, at Jamila Dugan.
1: Street Data Pod is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumbi. The senior producer is Maya Cueva. Our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Special thanks to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring.
0: If you want to learn more about Street Data and get your hands on a copy of the book... Visit Amazon, Corin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling and bumbling, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time.
3: Next week on Street Data Pod. Now, my radical dream is really that we completely reorient toward working, toward a future together that's defined by us for us, for us, by us, FUBU kind of a thing. And I mean that in whatever context you're in, because every context, every school has a different way that they're operating different groups of people there. What are our big dreams? Not the ones that someone told us that we wanted to have.
1: I got distracted because she disappeared. (laughs) All right, let me try that again.